All right, good morning, everyone. It's great to have you all here this Lord's Day. Um, if you could turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. That's going to be in the center of your Bible. Uh, if you're looking in uh, one of the Bibles provided for you in the, in the seats in front of you, I believe it's page 470 that we will be on today. It's Psalm chapter 44. So if you're, uh, if you're a, a, a small little kid uh, in, in the front row in a pink shirt and a bow, uh, that you can look for the large numbers in the book of Psalms for number 44, Psalm 44. All right, and I'm going to read aloud um, this word here in, in just a moment, uh, but before we dive in, I, uh, I wanted to kind of give a, a way of, of, of directing our, our thinking as we dive into what could be a, a very difficult at times to understand uh, passage in Scripture. Um, the book of Psalms is filled with many, many uh, individual and also grouped together uh, messages. Uh, it's the heart and prayer of, uh, of the Lord's people over years and years and years. And uh, occasionally, as I get up and I'm walking through the second book of the Psalms, you know, in my time when I get to come before you, uh, I, I will be walking through this book, and uh, it can at times be confusing. It can at times seem uh, possibly even unchristian, uh, depending on your upbringing. And what we are going to enter into today is is a psalm of lament. And so uh, I just kind of wanted to give us some some structure to think through. Uh, John Gibson P Payton, I believe. John Gibson Payton was a missionary to the cannibalistic tribes in the South Pacific Islands, uh, specifically the one called Tana in 1858 and another Aniwa in 1866. And he wrote extensively of, ex of his experience on these islands and in his experience on the mission field in an autobiography where he detailed many accounts of, of really horrible tragedies that overwent and overcame him, uh, one of which would be uh, shortly after landing on the first island, he lost his newlywed wife to a fever shortly to follow his newborn baby son. Uh, he was continually attacked at knife point by musket, uh, by groups of angry cannibals with axes. He was constantly under threat of traps and tricks from those whom he poured out patience and love to. The accounts of his time on these islands are actually very heartbreaking uh, as well as inspiring. But one of his quotes uh, from his uh, autobiography has always stuck out to me. It's been shared to me by a number of people throughout the years. And uh, it's, it's simply this. I had my nearest and most intimate glimpses of the presence of my Lord in those dread moments when musket or club or spear was being leveled at my life. It's an encouraging quote. This report of a godly brother has been equally experienced by many uh, since him, many throughout even scripture, particularly in the Psalms. But today, before we approach Psalm 44, I want to ask you a difficult question. What do you do when you're in the midst of intense suffering and there is no comfort? from the Lord. 
Now, the very idea of that question may seem inappropriate or unbiblical or unchristian, but John Payton's words ring true oftentimes for many believers as they walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and yet they fear no evil, for their shepherd is with them. Their God is for them. But what about when it feels like the shepherd is against them? It is here where we must grow in our understanding of this important genre of lament. In Psalm 44, we will see a beautiful example of a faithful, suffering servant lamenting before the God he trusts in. So we'll follow along with our forebrother as he pens this psalm in what I see to be four movements, four general movements in this lament. I'm going to put them up on the screen, I believe, if we have them. But number one, we're going to see him recall God's merciful providence in verses 1 through 8. He will recall God's merciful providence. And for alliteration's sake, we're going to continue with the R theme. Number two, we're going to see him raise afflictions before the sovereign Lord in verses 9 through 16. In verses 17 through 21, we will watch him reassure innocence before the all-knowing God. And finally, we will watch him conclude in verses 22 through 26 as he seeks to rouse the God of steadfast love to action on his behalf. So will you please follow along with me as I read aloud from God's holy and inerrant word from Psalm 44. To the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. But you have rejected us. And disgraced us. And have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe. And those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter. And have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle. Demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors. The derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations. A laughing stock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. 
And we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And if that's what you read this morning in your daily devotions, I pray this will be a helpful time for you. Now turn your heart with me again to this text. And what I pray will take place is that the Lord might use it to paint in our hearts a road map of faithful lament when suffering is real and God seems far. So we see first in verses 1 through 8. Our psalmist will recall God's merciful providence. So our psalm begins, Oh God. Something briefly to notice is that our psalm, about our psalm's lament is that he speaks to the Lord. And this is no simple complaint about God to a crowd of sympathetic listeners that he's gathered around him for some form of emotional support. Rather, he turns right off the bat, his eyes begin looking to the one that he believes can offer true help and true comfort. Then this lament starts with a a proclamation of what the psalmist believes, what he knows to be true. He begins by reminding himself of God's past deliverances for the people of God. He says, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. He knows who his God is because his fathers were faithful to tell him. God's mighty deeds. Often we read of God commanding his people to continually put the works of God before the eyes and ears of the next generation. For instance, we read in Deuteronomy 6, verses 20 through 24, God says, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders and great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always. That he might preserve us alive as we are this day. Well, this psalmist then is a product of such faithful shepherding of a godly father. You see, in in the midst of difficulty and in the midst of suffering, the psalmist begins by reminding himself of what he knows to be true, no matter how bad things seem to be. 
His fathers have made their words, their tongues, some kind of a, a book to lay before the eyes of the sons of Israel the splendor and glory of God as he reveals who he is through his wonderful works. Now, what were these works that were passed down? He says, you with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm. So here he is describing the conquest of the promised land for the Israelites by the hand of God. He's recalling to mind those deliverances. The one where a small shepherd boy slew a giant with simply a name and a small stone. How about when a group of people, led not by generals, but by priests, not armed with spears and swords, but with trumpets, walked about a wall more like a festival than a battle, and yet laid waste to the most powerful fortress on the border of Canaan? Could it be that he's recalling the times that the roaring waters of the Red Sea heard again the whisper of their creator as they bore down and drowned the mightiest army seen in the ancient world? All these and most likely many more, it seems, are on the forefront of this psalmist's thinking in the midst of his lament. When the only hope for the people of God was the hand of God to deliver them. So now why does he call these to mind? Because they tell something true of who this psalmist God is. Verse 3, For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. Now this shows some awe-striking providence of God, does it not? How he could pull an entire country up like a weed and cast it far off while gently planting his treasure of a flower, his people, deeply in the rich soil. In the midst of a deep trial, the providence of God brings comfort and the character of God brings hope. He says, for you delighted in them. And here we, see, we hear his theology at play. He, when, when considering the mighty deeds of God, see, he cannot attribute God's merciful care to his people as being due to any merit, any, any working of God's people. Rather, it's due to his own love for them. As John Trapp has said, grace was the fundamental reason for their felicity, another word for joy or happiness. God loved them because he loved them. He chose them of his love and then loved them for his choice. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, all good things in the lot of any mere man is an undeserved kindness. And the psalmist recognizes this. God is merciful. That this is a merciful God who sets his undeserved kindness on his enemies on those that are sinners, that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. Thus, our psalmist's first response to his lamentable state is to recall God's merciful providence. And what does this lead our psalmist to say? 
Verse 4, you are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. So being overwhelmed by the renewal of his mind, our psalmist bursts out in a request that seems as desperate as one that a child might make. As a child loses and feels their hand slipping away from a father's hand in a large crowd, they would cry out, Daddy, help! So also the psalmist cries out in a cry of faith. In a very similar cry to one that a soldier after many years would make, as he looks in the face of God. In one account, he sends his servant and says this, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Luke 7, 6 through 7. This is a cry of faith. Crying out from for help from the one that he knows is able to help. He's saying, God, if only you were to say the word, all that you would say would be done. So speak. Speak on behalf of your beloved. His mind renewed. The psalmist's confidence in the Lord is bolstered. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? So he goes on in verse 5. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise against us. Another translation says we will gore down our foes. The image is of a bull attack, being attacked by hordes of dogs, flinging them left and right. As an army would tramp down the flowers of a field as it marches through, so also he says we will tramp down our enemy to the dust from where they came. Why? Not because they're the fittest of soldiers. Not because they're the mightiest of heroes. What is it that gives them victory? We see in verse 6, For not my, in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes, and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Now again, remember, he's describing the Israelites' conquest of the promised land. And we know for sure they did indeed use weapons. They planned diligently. They fought. They had to think, work, strategize. But in all these things, they did not trust. And the psalmist knows what gives true victory. He speaks with the confidence of David in Psalm 20, verse 7, when he says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. This goes to show that the less confidence we have in ourselves or in anything else beside God, the more evidence have we of the sincerity of our faith in Him. In the midst of lament, one can know much of who God is and still understand very little of what He's doing right now. But this psalmist knows his God. Selah. The psalm shifts tone here as he moves to raise his afflictions before the sovereign Lord. Let's watch in verses 9 through 16. As the lament began, looking to God, so now it continues. Yet, instead of singing the praises of God, the psalmist looks to his God, whom he loves, and says, I know who you are. I know what you've done. 
I know what you're capable of. I know what one word of you would do for me and my circumstances. A single word could throw my enemy as far into the dark abyss as your word through the burning stars into the farthest reaches of the universe. But you. In verse 9. But you. Our psalmist knows God. But knowing God has not drawn comfort. It's stirred up questions. But you, he says. Who does the psalmist believe is in charge of his circumstances? Who does the psalmist turn to for help? Because it is he that brings these trials about. The Lord. But you. He's not saying, oh, God is too nice to let bad things happen, so truly he just must be incapable of stopping bad things. He's not trying to bend theology around in order to acquit God for the state of things. No, he he speaks very plainly, but you, the sovereign Lord, have brought all of this. Yet notice in the whole of this section, he will never accuse God of wrongdoing. All he does is raise his circumstances, the circumstances of God's people, before the eyes of the God that knows. The God who is still on the throne, the God who is still in control, ruling and reigning over all things. The one whose every word shall come to pass, and not a single ounce or iota of the universe shall ever wobble out of his sovereign will. This means that the psalmist knows who it is that is bringing all of this to pass. But you, verse 9, have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. God has seemingly abandoned his people. Verse 10, you've made us to turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. The enemy nations are victimizing and abusing God's people. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. Life no longer seems to have meaning. The offenses they've borne, these people have borne under, are so overwhelming that it's like they were created solely for the purpose of suffering. Verse 12, you've sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. God has given them over to their enemies without any trouble at all. The enemy has spilled no blood in taking them. It's more like someone who just gets rid of something they hate at whatever price simply because they want it out of the garage. He's struggling to see any good in this at all. It doesn't make sense to the psalmist why God is treating his people this way because he doesn't see God getting any glory from this. Verse 13, you've made us the taunt of our neighbors, the the derision and scorn of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. He's saying, we're a joke, God. Your name is being mocked. We have become the new example that parents teach their children with. 
We have become the new Sodom and Gomorrah example to the world. What good will be wrought from such utter slander and desolation to your people? I'm confused, God. I know who you are. I trust what you've done and what you're capable of doing. But I am oh so confused and I don't see what you're doing here. Notice that in this, he does not accuse God of doing wrong. But he does admit that he is confused with the God who does no wrong. As he looks about and sees a world filled with so much wrong. The psalmist begins by recalling God's merciful providence. And then he raises his afflictions before the sovereign Lord. And yet our brother is not a mere complainer against God's providence. He's not just sitting here whining about the state of life. No, now we will actually watch as he laments a very biblical reason for his confusion. As he will reassure his innocence before the all-knowing God. In verses 17 through 21. Verse 17. All this has come upon us. Though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. This is a key to understanding this psalmist's confusion, okay? You, you look and you see that this is why the character of God is drawing more questions to the psalmist than answers. More confusion than comfort. You see, he's looking back over the word of God. He is reading the ancient works of God. He's listening to the book painted by his father's tongue. And he realizes something. What is happening to God's people right now is not what they deserve. Now before you throw stones at me, let me clarify what that means. What the psalmist is not saying here is that he and God's people are perfect and therefore God just owes them some kind of good life. We know this on the basis of what he said at the very beginning. God did not delight in his people because they were delightful. It was a freely given delight. Yet we see that he's confused because though they are not perfect, they have not broken God's covenant. In general, they've been faithful. Not perfect, but faithful. And what he's about to do is he is about to list promise after promise after promise, directly quoting the covenant that God made with his people at Mount Sinai. I wish I could give you all of the Deuteronomy and Exodus and number quotations that he's about to hit. He's about to quote God back to God, saying, listen, you said if we turned away, then you would make us into a mockery, but we haven't turned away. You said if we reach our hands to another God, you will sell us to other nations, but we haven't reached our hands to another God. The psalmist is having this painful experience of knowing God's word, of trusting God's word, and yet struggling to understand how God's word can be true all the while God is doing what he's doing to his people. He's saying, hang on a second. The reason I have concerns is not because I do not believe the word. I have an issue because I do believe it. 
And I'm having a hard time getting it all to add up. Verse 18. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. We've turned neither left nor right, but we've loved the Lord our God with our hearts. Yet, though we love you, I'm not experiencing the most intimate presence of Christ in my affliction. Rather, I feel utterly abandoned in the place of jackals. The word rendered jackals is tanim, and it can, be, it can mean a number of things. It can mean great fish, a sea monster, a serpent, a dragon. It can even mean a wolf. The idea is the same regardless of the exact translation. This speaks of a place of desolation. He's saying, God, you have left us in the land of monsters. I do not just walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You've broken me and abandoned me there. And the shadows of monsters have covered me like a blanket. Bold word. But the psalmist goes on to defend God's omniscience, his all-knowing. And therefore, he claims the worthlessness of hypocrisy. If we had forgotten, verse 20, if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. So he isn't trying to fool anyone here, right? If they had broken the covenant of God, then by all means, this would actually make complete sense, right? Glass and diamond, they might look much alike, but fire will tell them apart. And this psalmist knows the fiery gaze of that all-knowing God, so he will not waste time trying to lie about his innocence. But that's the problem. They've been faithful to the Lord. Which leads him to only one possible conclusion. Verse 22. Yet for your sake. We are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And here I, I, I believe. I believe this is where we're seeing our psalmist questions begin to be answered. At last, we get a bit of an understanding at, at what's going on here. He does not say that God has done wrong. He does not say that God is disciplining them because of their sin. The conclusion that he arrives at is, is actually far more comforting and emboldening than that. It's yet for your sake. There is a purpose in this. The psalmist says, I do not know, I cannot understand it, but one thing that I know is that this is yet for your sake. We are not separated from God's love in this. We are not receiving His wrath, though all day long it sure seems so. No, rather, this is indeed a part of God's intentional plan that's coinciding perfectly with His love. The same God who chose Israel out of his abundance of love still today has the very same purpose for why he now chooses slaughter. The Apostle Paul will one day pick up this exact text 
to make the same point to his audience in Rome, in Romans chapter 8. Paul seeks to embolden believers to bear through suffering, and he reminds us that there is not one situation in this fallen world that will fail to bring about God's good plan for his people. I believe we quoted it at some point this morning. All things are for his sake and purpose, and they will be used to conform those who love God into the image of his Son, Jesus Christ, the one whom he did not spare but rather he sent him to die, and more than that, to raise. Who now sits at the right hand of God, ever interceding for those who call him Savior and Lord. Paul, in a heart of worship, at reminding us of what mighty deeds Christ has done, he bursts out in Romans 8, 35-39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The psalmist's purpose is most fully realized and most fully fulfilled therein. You see, he sings a song of lament as he glorifies the God that he knows. And yet, as he raises his afflictions before the God who is in control, he defends his faithfulness before the all-knowing God and concludes at long last that all has come upon him and it has not for one second separated him from the love of God. For this is for your sake. For your sake, we are sheep to slaughter. It's for God's good purposes that this has come about. And so now, he seeks to rouse the God of steadfast love. The God that he knows, that he trusts in, whom he's aware of what he's done and therefore who he is. And he seeks to rouse him now to action, this God of steadfast love. In verses 22 through 26, awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. So the psalmist here tells God to wake up. Now the psalmist knows that God does not sleep. This is not a theological premise that perhaps God is just taking a bit of a nap. Rather, this is a phrase calling God to act, to have patience no longer with the enemy, and to instead bring justice as swiftly as the wicked are raining evil down upon his people. I've heard it said that the best way, I've I've heard it said no idea if this is true. I don't even recall exactly who told it to me. But I've heard it said that the best way to defeat a giant snake 
if it begins to swallow you whole, is to lie still as if sleeping. Allowing it to swallow you whole up to your chest. Where the snake will begin to have to inevitably unhinge its jaw to eat the rest of you. And then awake. Strike it right in the latch of its jaw with a knife and slice it from within because it no longer has the ability to latch its fangs down upon you. You see, when the serpent is most confident in its victory, it's at its most susceptible. And the psalmist here is crying out, Lord, awaken! The time to strike is now. Just as it was when the disciples' boat was in fierce waves, they ran to God in the flesh and shook him awake. And they said, awake, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Verse 24, why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? The psalmist does not ask why as if he needs to somehow reason things out and understand better. Rather, he's asking why God goes on in this way. It's it's almost as we can hear the plea of the martyrs in Revelation 6, 9 through 11 as they cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? He pleads that God would act again on his people's behalf for what they are enduring. Verse 25, for our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. This brings about imagery of Satan in the Garden of Eden receiving his eternal curse from God. That he would crawl on his belly and eat the dust of the earth all his days. It feels as though we have the very curse of Satan upon us. We are treated like his children when we're truly yours. Here then ends our psalmist's lament. With a heart of deep love, vast knowledge of who his God is, with a faith rooted in the mercies of God, and yet with an honest awareness of his dark circumstances, he cries out in a final plea for deliverance. Verse 26. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. What does the psalmist only plea to God? Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. He ends by appealing to where he began with praising the Lord's steadfast love. Don't save me because I'm worthy. Save me because you are who you are and because you have sovereignly chosen to set your merciful affection on your people. Because I am yours, rise up. And his song ends with seemingly no response, no answer. 
This is a psalm written for the people of God to sing. When they're broken in the land of jackals. When they feel rejected by the Lord God. When they're running from their lives as John Payton did, and yet instead they feel no intimate comfort from the Lord Jesus. This is a lament to be sung for the generations and generations of true churches that would follow long after this psalmist's suffering days would end. Yet what comes to mind, more than anything else when I read a psalm like this, is whom this psalm finds its fullest fulfillment within. There is one person One faithful man of God who exemplifies this psalm to its fullest. Because the truth is, we can sing this lament in times of utter darkness, knowing that we're not abandoned by the love of God, because love himself chose to be abandoned on a cross for sinners. For those who are enduring deep suffering while in Christ Jesus. For those of you who wish to live a godly life and therefore will inevitably endure persecution, for for those of, of us who endure a loss of all earthly goods for all heavenly treasures, those who are in Christ Jesus and yet feel abandoned and alone, possibly even confused by God, you are able to sing this song. Because there is one who has gone before you. There has been one who has tasted the wickedness of the world to its fullest. There has been one who lived perfectly according to the covenant of God, never veering left nor right, never turning his heart nor his hands to serve any other God. Then yet this one who was willing to drink the wrath of God to the dregs, there was one who it pleased the Lord to break and cover in the shadow of death. Jesus Christ came, and though perfectly pleasing to God, His Father, He laid down His life willingly, that the wicked may have the love of God inseparably poured upon them. Isaiah 53, 10 through 11 says it this way, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You see, the reason that those in Christ Jesus could sing a lament such as this with a heart of faithfulness is because God sent his merciful grace upon them in Christ Jesus. He was brought down to the dust by the dust which he gave life as he gave his breath for those to whom he had given the breath of life. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We can lament because a Savior, Christ Jesus, sang this lament. Because he fulfilled this lament. Because he came to be abandoned. That he could promise to never leave nor forsake. He came to redeem us for the sake of his steadfast love. Therefore, let us use this lament. It's a hard text. It's a challenge. Some of the things, you kind of look at the psalmist and you want to step a wee bit away just in case the lightning strikes. But he says all he says out of faith. He says all he says as a weak person looking at a perfect God, not understanding, but he knows his God. And so he pleads for the steadfast love of him in whom he trusts. Let us therefore learn a lesson from this lament. I return to my original question. What are we to do? In the midst of intense suffering, and there is no comfort from the Lord, let me exhort you in four ways. The very ways used by our forebrother. Number one. Recall to mind God's merciful providence. Renew your mind with the mighty works of God. Consider His attributes, who He reveals Himself to be. There is much unknown in this world, but what we may know with absolute certainty is who the God of all creation is and what He has done in Christ Jesus. The psalmist's thinking is richly biblical, deeply theological, and the world and the circumstances of life do not make sense. So he held desperately fast to what was absolutely true. So also must we. Let me exhort you, number two, to raise your afflictions before the sovereign Lord. He knows your every tear. He knows your every fear. He sees your loss and He has borne your same cross. He came and he, that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Bring your sorrows before Him in prayer. He does not grow weary of hearing your pleading to Him. But rather as a doctor with medicine, He longs to give all who would come to Him that cure that would take their illnesses and give us life. The same God who proved His love for you as He bore your sin, it is He who brings your suffering for His glory and for your ultimate good. So bring your affliction to Him.
Number three, let me exhort you. Reassure your innocence before the all-knowing God. Know what I'm not saying. The Lord loves us enough to discipline us. He does. This is unyieldingly true. But not all evil things that happen in this world are a direct result of our personal sin. There is, in fact, nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Should suffering come, still, this is the love of God ever pouring out on those who are in Christ Jesus. We may indeed be blessed with the honor of being counted as sheep to be slaughtered. We may be blessed to be the voice of those crying out in the world, turn to Jesus and find life only to have the world seek our death. Our faithfulness here often will mean our inevitable suffering. And yet this we bear in common with Christ. The faithfulness of God's people in the midst of suffering has long been an incredible testimony to the world around. John Flavel described this point well in saying, instead of casting them into hell and convincing them by eternal fire, he is pleased to cast his own people into the fire of affliction that they who scoff at them may be convinced at an easier and cheaper rate. What a testimony the lamenting faithful servant is to a dark world filled with wrong. This time of suffering is for the sake of God. Seek faithfulness through it. Seek a reassurance of your innocence. Though we're fallen, we're broken, we're sinful, we're needy, we're imperfect indeed, and yet walk in repentance. And know that there is nothing that can separate the love of God from those who are His in Christ Jesus. Trust in Him to use our faithfulness, therefore, for His glory. And finally, let me exhort you to rouse the God of steadfast love to action. What is faithful suffering if not running to the one who loves you in it? Would a father not want to hear the cries of his sick child in bed at night? Would he rather his child suffer illness in silence with no comfort when he has storehouses of love prepared to pour out? God does not come to our aid because we're good. He does not pour out his mercy because we've earned it. He is not impressed by our timesheets or our monthly giving statements. He pays no mind to degrees, to my publications, to my following, to my popularity. The only qualification to earn me a hearing before Yahweh Almighty is the neediness that causes me to require Him to hear me in the first place. I am needy, therefore He hears. Oh, would Christians be a lamenting people? Would we be a people who, who see truly the horrors that are around us? And yet see even truer the God who brought heaven to earth that he might redeem those who would slaughter him. Would we be a people who run to our God ceaselessly 
to rouse him to act. And might we see all that he does as an outpouring of his mercy. As he works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. John G. Payton, later in his autobiography in page 164, he, he has a very helpful quote. Did ever a mother run more quickly to protect her crying child in dangerous hours? Then our Lord Jesus hastens to answer believing prayer and send help to his servants in his own good time and way, so far as it shall be for his glory and for their good. May the Lord bless this psalm as a teacher for our hearts, that we might learn to faithfully lament, trusting his sovereign grace and his unending love. Katharina von Schlegel, there's a fun word for you, fun name, wrote a, a lovely hymn. In it she says, Be still, my soul, your God will undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he lived below. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are a people with much to lament. And yet, Lord, oftentimes, it seems of my own heart, I just don't. I have not the faith to meditate on your merciful providence. I have not the patience to bring my afflictions before you, the sovereign Lord. I have no heart to plumb my obedience to you, to reassure innocence or faithfulness before you, the all-knowing, all-seeing God. And Lord God, I often have not the care to rouse you, the God of steadfast love, to action. God, I thank you for the needy souls who've gone before us. Lord, for the ones who have sung this song in ages past. I thank you that by the blood of the one true Lamb come for slaughter. I am able to be bound with him, considered his own, redeemed at a price. That my life may join with Paul's. That I may yet be considered a lamb for the slaughter. And yet nothing may separate me from your love. Even in suffering. I taste only your goodness. Lord, might we be a people who remember that. Might we be a people who lament. Might we be a people of deep faith, rich biblical knowledge. 
wonderful, breathed out theology that we might know you. And though that we might know you well and we may not understand all, that we might plead with you in faith as we wait, as we wait for your steadfast love to allow us to endure or to bring us home with you. We pray all these things in his whose only name is worthy of worship. Amen.